0: Well, good morning, welcome to Eastlake. So glad that you could make it out this morning. My name is Brandon. the teaching pastor here. We are on part three of a series, four-part series, uh, called Remembering Rightly. It's a series on memory, and it's not like, like general memory. We're not like training you to become like trivia mafia or whatever for uh, useless, useless recollection of stuff, but specific memories, uh, specifically, how do you remember suffered wrongs? That's like the idea behind this, uh, this series because uh, if you're older than five, you've experienced wrongs from somebody and, and that's really the, the thing that is, is the most powerful piece of suffered wrongs uh, is the fact that oftentimes it's not included in like circumstantial stuff. It's not like um, I was wrong because somebody you know backed into my car and then, and then I got hurt. I mean, that's, that's there, that's definite, but like the ones that like I'm talking about, the ones that sting a lot more than that are the ones that involve people, specifically a lot of times people that we care about. Uh, and it wasn't physical harm; it was something that they said, or something they did, or the tone in which they said something, or uh, there's, uh, or the fact that they just, you know, kept kept going down this road and kept beating this drum and kept whatever. And it's just like you just you recollect these uh, recollect these these memories of these things uh, in your brain, and, and it's really hard to let go. And we've seen how oftentimes memories like this can be debilitating for people. Maybe maybe even ourselves. Um, we we've been changed because of some <laughs> suffered wrongs that we've been through. Um, but it also can be inspiring for. For some people too, and, and you you want to be you want to be drawn towards those people. You see that, and you see how they're living their life and how they've gotten kind of over some of the things that they've gone through, and you're like. I want that. Now, I don't want to have to go through the things that you went through to get to that spot, but I love your perseverance. I love your resilience. I love your whatever. How do I get some of that uh, into uh, me? And, and, again, the question is not if these wrongs are going to happen to us. It's just a matter of when and how do we respond to it, specifically because we're in church and, and you know, you come to church expecting to hear um, something from Scripture and Bible and, and God's perspective. What is the Christian response. And I'm not saying that everybody has to be Christian to kind of take and pull information from this or that even everybody who walked through the door this morning is Christian. You might be just here um, exploring or, or whatever or kicking the tires of things. That's totally fine too. I, but I want to tell you today, a Christian response to it, whether in, if you're a Christian, then you don't have any option. You have to kind of, if, you, if you're like, I'm, I'm all pro-Jesus, then you have to take him seriously when he says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you're like, I don't know, me and Jesus are like, he's cool, but like we're figuring this thing out. Like, oh, cool. This is an opportunity to be like, that seems really hard because he doesn't know my ex-husband. You know what I mean? Uh, And here's the thing about that whole idea of love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Um, Yeah, you you do play these games. You're like, here's the thing that I know about Jesus. I'm pretty sure. I mean, like, I haven't read the whole Bible, but like, I'm pretty sure he never got married, which means he never got unmarried, which means he's never had an ex. That's why he could say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, because he doesn't know what it's like. He has no idea. Uh, and then you hear people be like, oh, Jesus was just like you, and you're like, not really. Did he have somebody cheat on him? Is that? Did that happen? Because if it did, then then I'm in, but um, anyways, we can play all these types of games, but anyways, those, those pain and those, those things sort of hurt, and so we said at the very beginning, because we're like three parts into this conversation, so there's gonna be a few things I'm gonna breeze through, which are kind of assumptions that, I think we've covered. So, but if you've missed it, you can go to slash talks Listen to parts one uh, and parts two. But in, in those parts, we basically said it's not enough to just remember something because that thing sort of happens passively and actively. We can either remember things because of like something uh, strikes something up in us. We we go somewhere and. Then all of a sudden we're like, I haven't been thinking about this, but I remember like this specific place or this restaurant that we went to or this movie that we saw. And it just, oh, it just brings back all of these types of things. That's like passive memories. And then there's like active memories that we're always trying to kind of, I want to remember this. I want to remember what we went through. And it's not simply enough to simply remember the things that have happened. We must push, this is the premise of week one, to remember rightly, And last week we said that there are two parts to remembering rightly. One is to remember truthfully about what happened in the past, or to take a negative aspect of that, to not speak falsely about things that have happened to us. And I know that 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 sounds really easy, but hopefully, as a result of last week, you realize the difficulty in that. And the reason that it's difficult is because we have this thing inside of us. Jeremiah, call, Jeremiah called it our heart. Biblical authors call it our heart. But heart just basically means the core of our being for them. They didn't have like, a ton of knowledge into terms of like, heart and mind. And you know, uh, Sigmund Freud hadn't been around yet to kind of provide that distinction. So for them, it was just like the seat of our emotions. In the seat of our emotions, our heart is inherently deceitful. Jeremiah writes this out of this personal experience of observations of people who do what they want and have convinced themselves that this is what's right because this is like, how, how convenient that God wants exactly what you want. You've created God in the image that you wanted to make him. Is he really even God at that point? How deceitful is our heart? Who can, this, would be, this is his bit of wisdom to those reading on in perpetuity, which is basically all the Israelites that day who would read it, but then also, I mean, i thinking forward, uh, future generations, be careful, be careful of your heart. Your heart can tell you things that you think should have happened. In fact, we said last week that memories are always an approximation of events, and what we often do is it's, it's, it's a combination of actual reality and then fictionalized reality. And sometimes we know the difference, or at least at the beginning, we know the difference. But as it goes on, we lose sight of the fact that we've kind of added some things to it. Why do we add things to it? To make it more black and white clearly in our favor and to make it more interesting because we all want to lead interesting lives. So memories can be a little bit deceitful. And so a good step moving forward is at least holding that in the background of our information. Be like, Listen, I know my tendency is it going to be to paint myself in a better picture of what actually happened, to, uh, t- to move the scales of balance of who was in the right and who was in the wrong heavily towards me and in my favor, uh, to paint a darker picture of that individual or that thing that happened uh, than what actually took place, uh, and to make it far more interesting uh, for me because that's what I want to do. So... What we said was sometimes what's not included are, is as important as the things that are included in something, so like a gluten-free thing or you know beef-free hamburgers, black bean burgers or whatever, that they, they prize the fact that this isn't in it. And one of the things that you need to know about remembering rightly, one of the things that could be the most important thing is to not include any sort of falsity and to be aware of our tendency to lean in that direction, to keep that as far away from our recollection of our memory as possible. So. What's not included and then what is included. Today, we're going to be talking about what is included. And to kind of highlight this or to get this thing started, I want to talk to you about the newest Quentin Tarantino movie, if that's okay for a second. And I don't know if you have seen it yet. It's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, It's about the Manson murders that took place in uh, the uh, fall of 1969. Uh, It included Sharon Tate, who, cool, fun, local connection, went to Richland High for a little bit. Um, and in that story, I'm, and I'm, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry, I'm probably gonna ruin this for you, but that's okay, you should have seen it already, it doesn't matter. Um, here's the idea behind it, sorry, plug your ears, I guess, if, you, if you're like, oh, I was, I'm watching this afternoon. You're lying, but that's okay, doesn't matter. What if you could take a tragic story and not retell it as it happened, because that's simply like just documentary work or like live action crap or whatever like the Disney's trying to do, whatever. Um, <laughs> don't care about that. I don't want a live retelling of it, but what if you took a creative, what if you took a creative approach to this and retold the story in the way in which you kind of wanted it to take, or, or, or change it up so this is how it could have taken place. Basically, that's what's going on in here. It's a new narrative about what could have happened but didn't, choosing to remember the story a different way. And specifically in this movie, and again, plug your ears, what if the murderers became the murdered instead? What if at the very end, this was like a revenge fantasy that's played out? Now, we've all experienced revenge fantasy before. We've played out in our minds what we could have said and should have said and should have left and should have... Slash those tires and should have done all the things. We've played those things out in our mind. But in this, in this scenario, he's like taken this and put it on the, on the big screen and said, here's the revenge fantasy at its best. What if the murders became uh, the murder to the point that a flamethrower is involved? And now I'm going too far and I'm giving too many things away, but you should check it out. And when you watch it, when you leave, you're like, how creative, like that's kind of a fun, fresh approach that we're not typically used to. And yet I also watched it, and uh, uh, my takeaway from it w- was... And I've, I've, he's kind of an odd character, Quentin Tarantino, right? And so there's, he doesn't come out and, and straightforward say, here's why I made this movie, but this is my takeaway. He, he, he found something tragic that was meaningful and thought, I could do this differently. I, c- I could change this thing up. And it was great, and, and I, I thought it was unique and special and whatever. And I thought, how creative... But I also thought, what an overcorrection as well. To have something bad and to then say something worse, that thing that you wanted to happen to others is gonna happen to you, but then, like I said, a is gonna be involved, so it's worse. Does that make sense? Like it's this revenge overcorrection sort of thing. And as I watched that, I thought about this re- remembering, he's remembering something in a way that he wanted to kind of portray it for other people, right? which goes against kind of what I want to say is included in, I think, remembering rightly. If, if we're supposed to leave out falsity and, 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 and our perspective of, of what might be clouded or jaded by our, our dark hearts or whatever, then what is included is remembering, hopefully, about the past, remembering, hopefully, about the past. And to, in order to illustrate this, I want to take us all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, second book, Really, actually, the end of the first book, Genesis, which is like the easiest book in the Bible to find, by the way. It's the first one. You just turn a couple pages, you're there. Uh, The next book is Exodus, and uh, that's the book that I want to talk about. It illustrates at the end of Genesis, um, there's a guy named Joseph who had a bunch of brothers, and they were all jealous of him, and he had this coat, and there's a story behind that. You've probably seen the the theater play or something like that. Um, And he goes into Egypt and becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, Uh, there's a a famine in the land of Israel and so all of the brothers in the family eventually thought or eventually went and visited him thinking that they could provide, you know, he could provide them food and it turns out that they didn't even know it was his brother because it was years and years and years had transpired and he does this big (coughs) giant reveal and then invites out of like this weird cool awesome story of redemption invites his family including his dad to come live with them in Egypt and and, you know on on the fatherland and this is the richest nation in the world and he's in a position of authority and all the kind of cool stuff and that's kind of how the story ends and then it picks back up in Exodus and here's what going to read in, in chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 12. They're going to be on the screens, and if it goes too fast, if you text the word notes in to the 97,000 thing on the bottom, you'll get all of this uh, on your phone. Uh, here's what it says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, uh, Simeon. I love his sandwiches, by the way, Reuben. Uh, Levi and Judah, Issachar, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt, We know this, everybody knows this already. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, all right? So so this is now, fast forward several years, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increasing in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. To whom Joseph meant nothing. See, originally, the original Pharaoh in the story uh, brought him over and he was so wise, he saved when everything was kind of plentiful and everybody thought this will just this is just going to be ongoing. And he goes, yeah, but what if it's not? He was like the best financial planner that they'd ever seen. And he literally saved the economy and put it in, in, in like prime position to be a world dominance of power. So he had an affection towards Joseph and his family and all that kind of stuff. But then a new new pharaoh comes along and there's instantaneous code that the authors would, are trying to kind of communicate to us as readers, things have changed. It's not as good as it once was. A new king to whom Pharaoh meant, or Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must build a wall and kick them out. Um, just kidding. We must uh, deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built uh, Pithom. You've ever been there? Pithom? And Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly, thus the beginning of what would transpire as, according to uh, their kind of personal history, 400 years of slavery under multiple uh, Pharaohs uh, throughout this process. So... Uh, Then you know the story because you've probably seen Charlton Heston movie or or have heard about the 10 Commandments story, the Exodus, Uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, we're not gonna do that. Um, that doesn't make sense to us financially. We would lose all of this these free labor. Uh, the, then the plagues begin to happen. Finally, the plagues become so bad, they let him go. They tra- he takes the people out of Egypt. They cross the Nile River. Uh, it floods, kills all of Pharaoh's people, and they go into what's known as the Promised Land. While they're in there, the whole entire book of Exodus talks about how God is trying to retrain them, as you would, you know, if you've been in a modicum of slavery for 400 years, and all of a sudden you're supposed to be this nation, God's chosen nation, Listen, we're gonna have to kind of set some ground rules. Here's what it's gonna look like if you wanna be my people." So we are going to establish a brand new constitution, which is known as the Ten Commandments, and it's going to take some time for you to learn these things. So before you actually go into this land that I've promised you, we are going to spend 40 years, 40 years, wandering around, and I don't know how you get lost for 40 years. Uh, Definitely a guy's involved in the leadership of that, but that's fine. At 40 years, you would think after like 40 days, you'd be like, all right, new leader, here we go, somebody else, I don't care who. 40 years they wander, all that time it's like this retraining ground in their minds. Um, they've been given 10 commandments, but then even after that, uh, what you see in the book of Exodus, and specifically like Leviticus and Numbers, is this new law being acted. All right, if this happens, then this is what's going to happen. If you find this on your skin, then you need to go outside of the camp for a few days. If somebody does this, then this is what happens to them. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As we, as we retrain each other, what it means to live in a civilized society. And we can look at Leviticus and be like, how backwards was that? You gotta think in the context of these people coming from where they had zero rights and they were on the receiving end of, of being you know, slaves where they can do whatever they want to me And then to get out and on their own, and then the potential for them to kind of enact that on the weak and the powerless and the women and the children in that scenario, so God quickly establishes some basic ground laws that don't match up to, you know, American society. I get it, but for them, it was an advancement. For 40 years, they're retrained in this way. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. And the reason it's boring to read Leviticus, if you've ever tried to read through your Bible in a year and you got to Leviticus and you're like, that's it, I'm done, um, is because of all of those laws, it just feels kind of repetitive and feels like I don't know how to translate that into the world that I live. If I have a skin disease, I go see a dermatologist. I don't go to Finley for a month. Do you know what I mean? It's totally different. So that's a hard kind of translation to kind of figure this out. Maybe you do go to Finley for a month. I don't know. That's different. That's different. As the Israelites are learning what it means to look, uh, to look like uh, and be the chosen people of God, uh, again, they're given... Ex- in Exodus, they get the history. In Leviticus, they get the details of the new law. But then in Deuteronomy, if you've ever gotten to the fifth book, it's the last book of what's called the Torah, the first five books. The Torah just means law. And that word Deuteronomy means second law. Uh, Deutero is like second, the same word that we get for like uh, deuce or whatever. It's it's all, it's about a second law. And it's not as if... Um, God saw, you know, here, here was the original law. Okay, that one's out. No, this is the new thing. This is the new thing that's coming in. It's not really that. What happened is Deuteronomy is set in a, in a way, it's presented in a way that is like different than the first example pre- presented. It starts off saying, and these were the words of Moses, right before they go into this promised land. They've spent 40 years wandering around. Over the time, they've picked up different general laws. And this is Moses' basically final sermon to the people before we go into this land. Finally, God feels like we're ready. So let me present a summarized version of what it's gonna look like to be the people of God in this new nation. That's what Deuteronomy is. So if you've ever read, if you've ever done the whole Bible reading through a year and you're disciplined in your you know, workhorse and you plowed through Leviticus and then you got to Deuteronomy and you're reading the exact same thing again, and you're like, that's it. I thought I was out the first time, and I'm so disappointed I made it to the second time. That's why you're reading it a second time, is because the point of it was this is them kind of one last time summarizing this before we go in, with a few minor changes, which is what's going to be of interest to us in terms of thinking, hopefully, about the past. Let's jump into chapter 15. Uh, verse 12 of Deuteronomy's take on the second law or the second experience of it. Verse 12, if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you for six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. Now, a couple things about this. This is known as the year of Jubilee. It was presented originally in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, 21, somewhere around there. Um, And in it, it was basically this. You know what it's like to live a life indentured Servitude to, to somebody else, right? You know what it's like to live without hope. I'm stuck in a slavery position uh, for the foreseeable future. No longer will debt be a lifetime uh, judgment against people. Uh, the max that they can serve, if they owe, and it basically means not if they came in, in like you loan them money and then after 7 years they get rid of it. It's basically like somebody owed you something, somebody did something to you, somebody off, you know, we're going to work, we're going to make this deal thing happen, and then it fell through and they just they just can't pay you. Then they could sell themselves to you in terms of really more in terms of employment than slavery, but you know, that kind of gets a little bit mixed. The, the wording there is a little bit difficult, but essentially no longer will people be tied their entire life to something to pay off their debt. Every 7 years or in the 7th year of their debt, it's going to be canceled and they're going to they're going to Free. It's called the year of Jubilee. Everybody knew it. We are going to do this because we respect human dignity and we don't want somebody to get too rich or we don't want somebody to get too poor. This is our way of kind of managing things in this way. But, and, and that was something that they had learned in the process, again, through the book of Exodus, that had come up. But then there's a little addition. It, and either Moses makes it or God makes it through Moses, but it's significant. Here's what it says. And when you release them, Do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. That was not original to the original presentation of the year of Jubilee. In here, he's saying, okay, you're gonna let them go free after seven years because we're not gonna let people just live their entire lives in slavery and in debt and all that kind of stuff. And listen, listen, listen. When you do it, come on. They've been working hard for you for seven years. Like give them something to get on their feet again. You don't want them to end up in this same exact position two years from now, do you? Maybe to somebody else, maybe not to you, but to somebody else. Why not bless them and send them on their way and hope for a better future for them? And not just hope for a better future than them, but giving them the tools, the resources to be able to make this sort of thing happen. To, to, to see the good in them, to believe the good in them, to send them on their way better than the way that you found them, essentially. Then he goes on. Remember, verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Fast forward a few more chapters. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 17 and 18. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. And whether it was like an oratory uh, sort of, tool, you know, you know, mnemonic device for, for Moses as he preached this. Remember, remember that you were slaves in Israel and that the Lord God redeemed you. Therefore, go and do differently. Uh, or, or whether, because it shows up so, I pulled two examples out of here. There's probably 25 examples in the book of Deuteronomy of them calling, the, of him calling the people to remember where they came from and to look forward and 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 then also to to remember where they came from, remember the deliverance that was given to them by a God who reached out in the middle of four hundred years of silence, right I mean the book of Genesis has them being like, this is our one God, our one God and then and then all of a sudden we must have been wrong because how do you justify four hundred years of silence and interrupts that silence with the deliverance story and a deliverance example with with by the way like plagues and things that that just don't happen naturally. Like for them, we're like, this is a very clear statement that there is something out there that is for us and against the Egyptians, and that deliverance came to us. Therefore, we should live in response to that. And over and over again, we read about an appeal to remember, hopefully, about the past. And thinking through how they are going to live this out in their new residence. Again, this is right before they go into this new land where they're gonna be the landowners, where they're gonna be the landlords, where they're gonna have the power, where other foreigners are gonna to come to them traveling for food because there's famine in their land. And how are you gonna handle when they show up at your door and knock on your door, asking for a handout, asking for something, asking for food because their children are starving or whatever, what are you gonna do with this? you've got basically two options to draw from as an example here. This is Moses talking to the people. Two two options to look at the story and be like, which one do you wanna be as a result of what you experienced? Do you wanna be a part of, you wanna follow the example of a redeeming God or the oppressing Egyptians? Which one is it gonna be? Listen, the temptation is gonna be to like, you know, isolate yourselves to protect yourselves, to protect your gain, and make sure that your family's taken care of, and whatever. And it's going to be about you and taking advantage and stepping on whatever I need to get to to get that, those things done. That's the path of the oppressing Egyptians. You can take that path, but listen, you have a choice right now. And by the way, he's he's saying this: there is a way. Remember this: there is a way in which you can reside in Israel but still live in Egypt. If all you've done is taken that mentality and switched the roles and are beginning to do this sort of things to all of the foreigners and all of the aliens and all of the poor that come to you, then you're basically a new Egypt. You're just in a different geographical location. You can reside in Israel and still live in Egypt. When you live disdainfully of others, oppressing them at every opportunity, believing only the worst about their past, you've never really left Egypt. You've just reversed roles in this way. For the Israelites, properly remembering their slavery and liberation involved treating their own slaves and aliens differently from the way that they themselves were treated in Egypt. And by the way, this is, this is not just them. Like He's trying to say, listen, it's not that you, if you fail to do this, all you're dis- doing is disobeying the moral law of God You're failing to understand a new identity that he's called you to. This is a part of your identity. This is not something that you do just to get it right and mark a box and be in right relationship with God. Like you're a different people group in this way. You were slaves in Egypt, but God redeemed you. You have a new identity in this way. The commands that come as a result of remembering Egypt are lessons not drawn from Israel's oppression, but from God's deliverance. It's not their memory of past suffering, but the memory of God's deliverance from past suffering that underwrites the command to be generous and just towards the weak and towards the needy. For them, he's saying this, listen, it's not enough to just overlook it. You must think hopefully about the past. What if instead of just forgiving them, you actually wanted what was best for them, which is, translates in for us, okay? When we look at this and we, when we experience suffered wrongs at the hands of people, and when we recollect the stories in our mind, it should not include, again, false stories that we create these things to make ourselves look better, but it, what it also should include is us reflecting hopefully about the past and actually wanting what is best for them. To want them to not do this uh, again for you, this does not mean, by the way, full restoration of the relationship. Doesn't mean you gotta you know, get back into the, that marriage or get back into this. That does, that's not what that means. But I want what's best for you. I really do. I really do hope you see how much you're hurting those who love you. And there's a way to say that and be a total jerk, right? I hope you really see how stupid you are, Right? That's not the right way to do it. I really do genuinely hope that eventually you become aware of this blind spot in your life. And if I, and, and maybe the position is never to even engage in telling them that because it would feel like, you know, you're taking the offensive and you're the whatever. But in your heart, do you genuinely want what's best for them? Or do you genuinely want unidentifiable diseases to occur that we're like, we don't even know what's happening there, right? That's the whole idea of, praying for, this is taking Jesus seriously when he says this. All he's done is pulled this approach from this Old Testament ethic that we may never see, but he's like, I want you to bless them and want something for them so that their future is different. When they leave this, this, this uh, bondage of work for you. Give them a little something so that they don't end up like this in the future. So it's not you involved them next time, of course, but so that it doesn't happen elsewhere again. I want that for you. As we leave and as this kind of relationship sort of breaks and things are never gonna get back to the way that they were, but in my heart of hearts, I genuinely, I I want to put myself in a position to to look back and hopefully redeem the past and think hopefully about the past and your future involved. and, And it's really hard for me and I don't know how that plays out, but if we're gonna take Jesus seriously when he says, love your neighbor, pray for those who persecute, I think it involves that. In fact, Paul describes a little bit about this, takes this, I think, reaches back into kind of this Old Testament uh, fixture sort of thing and pulls this forward. And as he writes his letter to the Roman church, as he's trying to play out his own kind of systematic theology and how I think the whole thing works in terms of faith, he has this little exposition in chapter five, verses seven through 10, where he says this. He identifies us in this. He throws himself in the mix as well. While we were still sinners, not while you guys were still sinners, we all doing your sin stuff. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if, we, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Here's what he's saying. Listen, Christ died for you When you, and he's speaking personally, and I know you're like, that was 2,000 years ago. What does that have to do with me? He died for you um, while you were not like repentant. It's not like you took four steps in and he's like, okay, then I'll die on the cross for you. He took that step before any of that took place. And from Paul's perspective, we were still, our hearts were so dark and we could not make any movement towards that at all. He died for you while you were still sinners. And if we identify with his death as a sort of reconciliation for us and God, how much more his way of doing life. If you claim that his death means so much to you, then how could you not claim the way that he prescribed the best way to do life as not being all that helpful for you? If that's important, this should be as important, if not more important. And so when he says the best way to do life is to actually love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to be hopeful about the past, to be forward-looking, to be some sort of a resource to maybe help them not experience this in the future. For sure, not with you, but just in general, that's the best way to do life, even though it doesn't make sense sometimes, because there's all kinds of particulars in our scenario, where you don't know what I've been through, you don't know what he said, you don't know what she said, you don't know what like, legal things are involved in this. I know, I know, I get it. I'm just telling you, Jesus taught in this way, and Paul would say, listen, it's above and beyond, but if we're so enthralled with his death, if, we, if next week when we receive communion, you're like, God, thank you for dying on the cross for me and reconciling me and, and covering my, my basis of sin, and then we don't listen to the way that he ex, you know, exhorts us to do life, then are we not missing out? Have we not taken like, a little bit of a selfish approach to this? This is what seemingly is benefit for me because this is passive. This is something that you did for me. This will require me to do something. We'll see. I'll see. We'll see if it works out. There are some people I'd be willing to love and pray for. Those who, there are some people who don't fall into that category, and I'm so sorry, Jesus. <laughs> Remembering this is uh, from a guy named Miroslav Volf. I mentioned him last week. He, he, he further, his book has been insightful for this. Remembering rightly is work. It requires commitment and discipline. It is difficult even if those who have suffered wrong undertake it, not simply for the sake of their wrongdoers, which is what I'm telling you to do, but also for your own sake, in that, in that there's a personal benefit in this. With the help of Christ living in them, they can love, and, or sorry, excuse me, they can live in a way that resonates with what is best in our humanity by imitating the God who loves the ungodly. Paul would say this. I know it's really hard to like, do things and be positive and have a hopeful outlook for people who have hurt you. But Christ has already done that for you. So therefore, his kind of method of teaching us that this is the best way to do life, some of that should begin to click for us and be like, perhaps he's right. Perhaps he's serious. Perhaps he means it when he says that sort of thing. And I know we don't sometimes feel like the ungodly that God loved for us, and we were just we we're pretty good people, but if we could just get a little dose of uh, Jesus' death on the cross to kind of make us even, polish us up even a little bit more. So God likes us like we're in for that. And we've like failed to understand the self-centered nature with which we are at ourselves and to realize how far He came in this to be able to save us, if Christ is infatuated with loving the ungodly then perhaps we can do our part to those who have hurt us unjustly and caused us, suffered harm. I wanna close with this, a little question, a little social experiment. It's meant to be rhetorical, but you can think about it or talk to your neighbor about this or whatever. But what do you think the opposite of fragile is? What's the opposite of fragile. You've seen that marked on boxes, uh, usually something that's being shipped that is easily breakable, or it'll say fragile, and underneath it'll say, Handle with care. Because any sort of chaos, any sort of mishandling, any sort of disorder, it's all susceptible to that. There's breakage that could occur. So oftentimes when I ask this question to people, what is the opposite of fragile, they'll say, "Uh, something that is like stout, something that is sturdy, something that is unbreakable. But is that really the opposite of fragile? These things simply remain neutral in light of chaos and disorder, don't they? To be sturdy, to be stout, to be unbreakable. Being fragile means it gets worse with disorder. So the opposite would not be it stays the same with disorder. It's not affected by disorder. It's not affected by chaos or mishandling. The opposite would be perhaps like this anti-fragile, if you could add that into it, something that would have to gain from mishandling abuse and disorder it likes being mishandled because it actually gets better as a result of this. Let me give you an example in real life. um, Evolution succeeds because of negative stability. People invest in markets oftentimes in a way that benefits from instability. Vaccinations, in theory, and I'm not trying to be political here, work in this way. In Roman history, Emperor Nero's own mother her name was Agrippina, was so afraid of the volatility of her son, Emperor Nero, who was like known to be like this crazy, wacko weirdo, not just to Christians, but just to people in general. He was literally probably insane or at least bipolar or whatever. He'd become obsessed with killing his mom. He was an only child and was so fearful of abdication of the throne or who was going to take over after him and everybody was against him. He was literally in a state of paranoia. She knew he was so obsessed with killing her that she began poisoning herself every single day, just a little bit, so that her body would build up an immunity for when her son would eventually try and kill her. She knew a little bit about poison because she likely used it to kill one of her husbands because it's crazy. Roman history's nuts. Eventually, eventually, she was murdered by her only child, Nero, but not by poison, but by a sword because even 2,000 later, years later, we've never discovered an antidote for swords. But... In that moment, she knew a little bit of something, a little bit of something that takes something away potentially makes me a little bit better of a person or um, um, uh, more resilient. It makes me stronger than I was. I'm more adept at fighting that off, that perhaps not if, but when my son tries to poison me, maybe it won't actually kill me. In classical literature, um, there's a guy named Ovid who writes, and he says, "Difficulty is what wakes up the genius." There are certain things inside of us that you, you ever had a dad that that uh, didn't want you to to like be soft in life, and so they'd, they you know they'd take you out and they'd, they'd push you on the bike, knowing full well like the training wheels are off, you're probably gonna crash a few times, but you know what? You're gonna get tough in the process, and sometimes it goes overboard, and your, your mom was like, "Hey, that's." like abuse and we're gonna get the cops called on us or whatever, but like at some point, your dad or whatever, father figure or somebody, at some point, somebody has pushed you, let you fail a little bit. Knowing that the small pains would develop something in you that'd be more resilient for the future, that you'd be actually a better person in the long run as a result of it. Obstacles oftentimes breed innovation. Perhaps a little bit of pain to go through some things, perhaps experiencing some suffered wrongs can potentially lead us to approach something with a resilience that is not just like, okay, I'm more protected. I'm more shelled in. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I become uh, less susceptible, less vulnerable with people. I've been hurt so many times. My walls go up. We know that that's not right either, right? But perhaps what it is, is I live my life in an anti-fragile way. I, I, I even with the suffered wrongs that take place, if I'm willing to come back and willing to be the type of person who refuses to insert falsehoods in this and instead think hopefully about this, I become become stronger than this. It actually makes me better in this way. And it's not like I'm like, please hurt me. I'm like welcoming you know, pain or suffering or whatever. But like those things are inevitable in life because we live in a broken world and we live with broken people. And so when those things happen, I don't say, woe is me. I don't play a victim mentality. I go, how can I grow from this? How can I, what can I do from this? Perhaps our resilience towards suffered wrongs can actually turn us into better versions of ourselves. Perhaps Jesus knew what he was talking about when he commanded us to love those who have hurt us Perhaps when we remember hopefully about the past, we can, like Paul advised, be saved through Jesus' way of doing life. So we must push to remember rightly. And in remembering rightly, we refuse to go with our heart what our heart tells us we should or not have done or whatever. whatever. And in doing so, we look fondly back and we look with hope We don't discount what they did, but we genuinely want growth for them. And we also want to look at our lives and be like, how can can I grow through this and be stronger as a result of this? And perhaps it comes through taking Jesus seriously about what he said. And practically, how that plays out, what phone calls need to be made, what emails need to be sent, or what phone numbers need to be unblocked, or I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That's like, you gotta figure that out. That's in your realm, that's in your ownership area. My hope today is just simply to present it and be like, what are you gonna do with this? You can't just write off Jesus when he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It's not that easy. Remembering rightly offers a way forward. And next week, we're gonna finish off and talk about how long, how long do we have to do this? How long do we have to continually think hopefully about this type of thing, want the best for them and move forward with this? Hopefully you can join us for the finale. Let's pray. Father. This is not easy stuff. this whole series we knew going into this would not be like happy clappy we're going to go home inspired and like you know post a bunch of verses on our instagram or whatever this is uh This is one that we 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 definitely have to work through and and figure out these implications because it's 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 not it's not easy and so I pray that you would give us each of us the wisdom considering our circumstances and the relationships that have hurt us, the people that have hurt us, the circumstances, the suffered wrongs that we've gone through, whatever. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard and the courage to do something about it. In your name, amen.